0: Void, quite calming, actually. It's like, this time, the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like
1: I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. Ah!
0: This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see
1: warning this podcast contains foul language dark invocations and treating women like their people welcome friends to episode 89 of embrace the void where there's a lot of doings a transpiring i am your host aaron and with me, until the Dark Pact is fulfilled, is my good friend GW. How are you, G-Dubs?
0: Is that like a, a Jedi video game, like, reference? You saw Which you one, saw that trailer, pact, right? Doing... The, the new Jedi game that's coming out, like November. I mean, I've, I've
1: heard stories about how EA might make a game that wouldn't be horribly exploitative, but, you know, you hear stories about things like Jedis. Mm-hmm. You don't actually ever see one, though. hmm
0: I don't know. I thought that Jedi Outcast was super good.
1: Yeah. And I mean, Force I'm,
0: the Force Awaken. No, Force Unleashed. That was pretty good.
1: I'm just saying EA has gone to the dark side and not in a fun way. <laughs> um so yeah. Uh how's things other than uh uh force packs though?
0: Uh things are good. Uh I have gum demons, but uh Oh no. Hopefully that will get fixed tomorrow, so things are are good okay
1: yeah that's i guess was one of our doings that's transpiring yeah
0: um and you have you have rent demons
1: yes i'm um maybe a little weird especially unusually weird today because i'm doing court tomorrow at eight thirty with lou to uh argue our case of the, uh, the pipe demons um and, and, yeah, it's going to be weird. Um, that, that's the reason, by the way, for folks um, to understand. We're we're doing a little weird thing today. Um, we were going to do an episode on, like, um, the Democratic primary and the Mueller stuff and, like, the current state of uh, the void kind of things that we sometimes do. But it looks like there might be a, a Mueller report released at some point in the next couple of days so we were holding off on that and then like with this trial thing as well if it's going to be more interesting to fill folks in on the the full story after the effect um but yeah uh i guess by the time that folks have heard this we will have at least um gone to court and dealt with the situation but um it's super stressful because i really don't like engaging with legal proceedings um i don't like being around legal proceedings of any sort. Uh, this will be the first time. And this will be like the second time ever that I've been involved in serious legal proceedings. Um, so I'm a little,
0: uh, and I'm guessing you don't count your marriage as part of that. (laughs) No, no.
1: I'm talking about specifically this and one sexual assault case that I testified as a witness, uh, back in college. So those are the two. Um, and yeah, like we've never dealt with anything like this before. So, uh, but you know, I've had some, uh, good advice provided to me on making sure that I was doing all of the right things. And I think that, um, you know, uh, I think that we have a good case. You've all heard the case over the course of the past several months. Um, so fingers crossed, we'll get a sympathetic judge and we'll, uh, stick it to the man and then we can report back on that but if we can't it'll be a voidy story about how a judge told us that we still have to pay rent even though our slumlords didn't uh, fix this incredibly painful issue (laughs) you know so win either way
0: speaking of the molar report I think that the like darkest of all possible timelines the molar report would have everything redacted except the words molar and report (laughs) (laughs) Or just no collusion, no obstruction. Just so the, the word "no," the, six the word "collusion," and the <laughs> yes. word "obstruction,"
1: like three hundred pages apart from each other.
0: Yeah, even yeah. even the word Mueller is redacted, but Bob is okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like mildly optimistic that like when the Mueller report comes out, there's going to be some stuff in it that will be seriously damaging to Trump and will sort of vindicate a lot of the concerns that a lot of people have had. Um, But that may not be the case either. So we may have a bunch of really depressing stories to report on next time. So stay tuned. Um, But in the meantime, we're going to do a uh, better know a philosopher. Um, And since we didn't have, we weren't planning on this, we didn't have time to do a vote. Um, But this is someone who I think is a, a great choice based on ones that we've already done uh and it's also a great choice because i happen to be studying with her this semester at rutgers um and she has a lot of really cool uh ethical issues uh that she has done serious work on so it will provide us a lot to cover without too much prep since i've got to get back to writing uh my arguments
0: for court (laughs) we well, oh, so I didn't realize that you were actually, you've been working with this person. So uh, mm-hmm. clearly, clearly, you're going to be very biased. Uh. Mm. Super
1: biased. <laughs> I am 100% biased. And if you're wondering why we're not having her on the show, it's because, as you'll find out, she's way too busy doing way more important things than to be on this show. So I'm lucky that I get to be studying with her. Um, and I'm happy to talk about. Her work, and we may we may at some point manage to convince um, the other teacher um, in that class who uh, is also doing really important work, but has done a couple of podcasts and may be interested in coming on. So perhaps fingers crossed about that.
0: I think, therefore, I am. Rene Descartes. Optimism madness. Die all well when we miserable. What's that? Chicken, Pierre. You're just a little chicken. Not me, Tommy Wiseau. So
1: our philosopher this week is Francis Cam. I'm still probably pronouncing that slightly wrong. Um, Cam. Um, I mean, it wouldn't wouldn't be a
0: show if we weren't mispronouncing names. Yeah. And I'm like, and luckily
1: I get to call her Francis because she's explicitly told me that I'm allowed to because I am technically her, um, uh, coworker, her, uh, as opposed to merely her student, um, but though I imagine she allows everyone at this point in, in her students um, to call her Francis, uh, at, least, at least in her grad students. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so she's really, like I said, has an impressive uh, range of work um, that she's done, which is good because, uh, funny enough, she doesn't have a very um, robust sort of bio on, like, uh, resources that I could find, which I think is partly just a fact of her being a uh, still living philosopher that like this the sort of bios of still living philosophers, I think are often very sort of straightforward just descriptions of where they studied and what they've studied and what they've written on and such. Um, so uh, Francis, um I could say this at least, uh studied at barnard, um got her b a in sixty nine. Uh, and her doctorate in—I know—stick with it. Nineteen sixty-nine. Keep on.
0: No, you said her a doctorate B. A. in nineteen 19- sixty-nine. It's just—I'm sorry, I can't help it. Uh, she got her BA in
1: philosophy in nineteen sixty-nine. Uh, there you go. You feel better now. Yeah. <laughs> oh Jesus! Um, got court brain. Uh, her doctorate in nineteen eighty from MIT. She's been a professor, as far as I can tell, at NYU, Harvard. Uh, Obviously, she's currently teaching as well, um, visiting at Rutgers. Um, She's also been an ethics consultant for the World Health Organization. Uh, She's a fellow at the Hastings Center. I think she probably still is a consultant with um, WHO, but like she is a substantially engaged, top level, highly published um philosopher in the field of um primarily non-consequentialist ethics. So um just wanna, I just want to I just want to give a list of like all of the topics that we will hopefully maybe be able to at least mention over the course of describing all the work that she's done, but these are all things that she has done important uh worthwhile reading work on. She did she so she like I said she's um Primarily, a, she's a non-consequentialist, and we'll talk about what that means, though we've talked about consequentialism before, so it's essentially a rejection of consequentialism. Um, in, in connection with that, she's done a lot of work on the relationship between ethics and intuitions, uh, and intuitions are something that we haven't actually talked about, I think, a lot on the show so far. I did a little bit of discussion about intuitions on the Political Philosophy podcast, um, with Toby Buckle, who we had on this show. Um, but um, we can, we should talk a little bit about the the arguments around the use of intuitions and ethics because uh, it's an important issue and one that she's done, I think, some really interesting work on. Um, she's also done work on what's called the doctrine of double effect, which is a question about when it's okay to cause certain negative outcomes Um, and it's a really, that's a really interesting, tricky, um, issue that especially comes up in things like euthanasia and abortion, especially with related to Catholic theology and ethics. Oh, that's interesting.
0: No, no, no. I was just, I was about to ask for an example, uh, where you would want a negative outcome or where it would be okay to accept a certain negative outcome, but Yeah.
1: It's it's often, it's cases where in some sense the goal is not the bad outcome, the goal is some sort of good outcome, and the bad outcome is brought about in a expected but acceptable kind of way. So we can talk about a couple of examples where we might feel like, and I ultimately am very skeptical personally, my intuitions go against the doctrine of double effect a lot of the time. Um, but I do try to look for at least cases where it might seem plausible to some people.
0: Yeah. Um, Because it's almost like, you know, by bad outcome, it's almost like you're implying uh, an outcome where someone or someone's suffer in some way. And yeah, yeah. The classic
1: example would be the, the classic trolley problem where you flip the switch saving five people by letting by killing one person right so the killing of that one person is not done as a means to killing to protecting the other five people and some would argue that because it's not done as a means it's it's an um foreseeable uh, side effect right that makes it morally acceptable
0: yeah or or like for example um in, in a less sort of grotesque way uh uh punishing uh a kid right like if you're a parent and you punish your kid which obviously puts them through a bit of suffering uh but it's mm-hmm. for a greater good of, of teaching them about morality or something like that
1: yeah and so there might be an issue of if you use harm as a specific means to an end that might be a problematic way to engage in some in a, a behavior versus if you do something that brings about a good end but you know is likely to also cause harm
0: yeah um, and, and by so, harm, and by harm just just so i'm clear uh I, I don't mean physical harm i mean i mean like um uh for example you know your kid skips school or something and so you would take away their phone for a week uh, which obviously would cause them harm uh of not having the phone but it's a punishment in order for them to learn the lesson of not doing that
1: Yeah, I mean, that would be the kind of harm that we have in mind, and it's just a question of whether it's justified in those kinds of cases.
0: Yeah, and Um, and, and I just wanted to say that, just to make sure it didn't sound like I was saying, yes, you should beat your children so that they do things correctly, right? That's not what I mean.
1: (laughs) But I mean, like, a lot of the, and like, one of the things that uh, Francis is famous for is... Her use of a bunch of cases, her, her work on case studies. Like a lot, she argues that a lot of ethics is based around doing these kinds of thought experiments, like science experiments, like we've seen we talked about before with the trolley problems and stuff, where you try to isolate variables and focus in on um, you know, showing that the intuitions are robust and not just the result of like evolution alone or something like that. So we'll, we'll talk about, I want to talk about all those things, but let me just mention like the other things that I also want to say are important in the work that she's done, whether or not we get to it is um she's done some major work on killing versus letting die as a distinction within ethics. There's a lot of debate over whether it is more moral to let someone die than it is to kill someone um or if there are situations where it's okay to bring about an instance of letting die where it's not okay to bring about an instance of killing. Um, so I we'll talk about that mm, some as well. It's yeah, another like I situation get into that one. Yeah, intuitions differ wildly on this one a lot of the time. It's really interesting. Well, She's also I, done I, really important work.
0: Yeah. No, I was just going to say I've been rewatching all of Grey's Anatomy so like that question is mm-hmm. like totally on the tip of my tongue right now. I'm sorry, but go ahead.
1: No, yeah, and, like, the classic flip example of the trolley problem is murder hospital, right, where you kill one person to save five other people, and as often cited as an, as a textbook example of the intuitive difference between killing and letting someone die, where, like, if a doctor could save five people or one person, they should totally save five people and let one person die, right, if it's not a, like, weird transplant case, so there's there a lot of, like, conflicting, I think, intuitions that are in, emerging and in that are, like, sort of existing in the background that pop forward. Um, she's also done work on our good friend Super super Erogatory um, versus Obligatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've I've been pronouncing it I think slightly imp- um, slightly poorly on this show. I think I've been supererogatory it, where it's it's, it's technically
0: erogatory Oh God! Um, now you're gonna oh I finally got yeah. that word down, and now I've been pronouncing it right. I'm I'm Super, a horrible terrible supererogatory supererogatory. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's two ers in there. Oh fuck super-erogatory. me!
1: Supererogatory. Um, Ugh. and that's Ugh. my fault. I'm I'm bad at. Things it, and stuff. I,
0: I think it is super derogatory for you <laughs> to have to pronounce that word correctly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's good use. That's a good use in a sentence. Yeah, you get a star. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And what's really particularly interesting? Um, a lot of this this class that I've been sitting in on with um, her and uh, Larry Temkin has been about the intransitivity of ethical obligations, which, like. Short story is like you can get into these weird loops of you would assume that if A is more obligatory than B or less obligatory, for example, and B is more obligatory than C, then like C is more obligatory than A. But it like turns out that it's not that there are a lot of these weird transitivity problems with regard to questions of like, what is the best outcome and what you're allowed to do or not do? that come up especially when you accept the existence of super erogatory obligations
0: yeah it sounds like it's it's a relativity problem it's Um, the relative nature of a to b and b to c and the relative nature of a to c is different
1: yeah and and like that's exactly right and and what one of um the principles that she's um that that francis is famous for you know like well-known for amongst philosophers at least um none of us are really that famous outside of that tiny world but like is the principle of contextual interaction which is effectively a claim that says that like just showing that a principle gets swamped in one case or another or doesn't work the same way in one case or another doesn't prove that the principle is wrong that in fact there's a, a complex contextual situation where sometimes Something will count in favor of an action, where in other situations it would count against it. Or sometimes the you know relative options make an action obligatory, where other times they would make it potentially permissible.
0: So yeah, it, it's it's a statistical thing, right? Like you know you can have uh, uh, something work ninety nine percent of the time, but that still means that one percent of the time it's going to go the other way. Right? Is that yes, what you mean? Yeah. Well,
1: sort of, but in the sense I want to I s I just wanna I just wanna clarify and say it's not that it like when it goes the other way, it's because the principle isn't true. It's that when put you know, like this variable on its own has this effect. But when put in context with this other variable, it has this other different oh, effect. Oh, I see. It's not that the variable isn't an effect in both cases, it's just that it 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 factors differently when it's put in relation with other things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: what you get is a really complicated, really, like, tricky um, ethical landscape in which, like, a lot of competing intuitions exist. And it's not always like there may be no um, there may or may not be any simple unifying way that we can lay out like here are all the principles that you should follow in this particular case in this particular way um so but she does do a lot of work in like laying out specific principles um doing like the trolley problem stuff she um she has a really interesting pushback on the the thompson trolley problem that we talked about when we did thompson which is um the case where like there's three tracks and you can either kill yourself or kill the other right. person. She has a really interesting pushback on that, that I think we can talk about some. Um, so yeah. So let me circle back around now to the beginning and start with the most general and move forward from there, which is what I mean by saying that she's a non-consequentialist. Um, and she had wrote a really great chapter in um, her book. She's done a couple of books um, that I would suggest people read. The most recent one is the trolley problem mysteries, um, but also intricate ethics. Um, and, uh, you know, her work on harming and not harming is really interesting. Um, so she did this chapter, um, on non-consequentialism where she basically says that, like, it's a rejection of the view that all of ethics can be reduced down to questions of you know, what are the best consequences or what action will bring about the best consequences. Even if you take into account as, like, some modern consequentialists do, that, like, the action itself is part of the consequences, she still explicitly rejects that and says that, like, in effect, she distinguishes between consequentialism and not consequentialism by saying that consequentialism is teleology. It's a discussion of what would the best outcome be, right whereas non-consequentialism is a deontology it's a discussion of what are the right and wrong things you ought to do and there are cases where the right or wrong thing to do won't produce the best outcomes
0: so if i were to like dumb this down could i say that Mm -hmm. consequence consequentialism would be uh given uh uh these two outcomes which one has the better consequences while the deontology would be more like let's explore what options are available is that is that a way to say it
1: um yes and when you're exploring them there are factors that can come into play beyond what we would reasonably call the consequences Mm -hmm. right so again thinking back to our example of uh the trolley problem right The question of, so some deontologists, though not um, Francis, some deontologists would say you can't or you shouldn't, um, you know, turn the trolley onto yourself or turn the trolley onto the one person rather than the five people, right? That, like, the act of, you know, killing that person or letting them die, depending on how you believe, how, how you view that action, right, is... Not morally acceptable, even if we can all reasonably agree that it would be a better outcome if the five people
0: survived. And that is, is that because, um, is it because the agent is doing something that affects the outcome in any way?
1: Potentially not in the sense that, like, if by outcome we mean how many people are saved or how much, you know, where is the suffering distributed, it wouldn't necessarily change that. But, like, there are a couple of different factors that like people have often pointed to to explain what the other thing is besides consequences. right? So, one of the simplest ones, the Kantian kind of one, would be that it's it's something about the intention or the maxim, the reason that you do the thing that has an impact on whether or not we consider the action moral or not, what no matter the consequences. Right, So an example would be, you know, you might think that there's a difference in the morality of an action between, you know, like if, if I if I turn the trolley to save the five people, that's one purpose, one reason for doing it. If I do it because I looked on the other track and the person on the other track is someone who I really don't like and would just love to see dead, and I turn the trolley to kill that one person explicitly... Is that morally significant? Does that make a difference in how we view the ethical nature of the action?
0: Mm. Oh, that's a good way to put it. And so the deontologist would have a different uh, uh, perspective on that than the consequentialist? Because the consequentialist would say—and tell me me if I'm off base here—the consequentialist would say that it doesn't matter the intention of the person— the outcome is that the five people are still saved, while a deontologist will say, "Well, you wanted to literally murder someone, and then you did actions that caused someone's murder."
1: Exactly right. Um, I see the John Stuart the John Stuart Mill quote uh, when he's asked about intentions. He says um, intentions can tell us a lot about how we judge the character of the individual who engages in the action. So we might consider the person who murders the one person a horrible person for that intention, but it wouldn't impact in any way the moral nature of the action itself
0: insofar as it still saved five people. Can I make it one layer more complicated? Yeah. So so let's, let's say uh, that we're taking the view that you make the switch because you actively want to murder someone. Does it uh-huh. then... And then we can make a moral judgment on that. Does it then make it more complicated if we then say, well, what if the person has some sort of brain? Uh, I'm going to use the word defect because I, I don't know the, the mm-hmm. best word to use, but some sort of brain defect that means that they don't have a conscious like they don't have uh, uh-huh. uh, what sort I want to use. Um, empathy. Yeah, they they don't have Empathy. And are uh-huh. un, are are physically unable, right? I'm using the free will, the no free will, sure. uh, sort of argument here. So they they flip the switch because they want to actually murder the person, but they have a mental defect, so they're not able to to have empathy.
1: Yeah, yeah, that could have another layer of impact, and it could be that like that would then ameliorate our moral judgment of that individual, right? And that and you might still wonder would that change the moral character of the action or just our judgment
0: of that particular individual because it right. seems it seems to me that a consequentialist mm-hmm. could you know easily take it seems it doesn't it doesn't seem like a steelbot position of the consequentialist to say that well even if the person wanted to actively murder the one they still save the five it seems more that the steelbot version of a consequentialist would be that uh it's good that the consequences are the five people survived, but the consequences are still someone actively murdered someone. Uh, And that if they were unable Mm -hmm. to make that choice because of some Mm -hmm. uh, mental inability to do so, then the consequences still are fine. But if they had the mental capability to do so, the consequences would still would be bad. I don't know. I guess like you could go a layer deep in complexity. I don't know if that, If I'm making much sense of sort of wrapping your brain around it right now.
1: No, yeah, I mean, you're totally making sense in that, like, this is the dialectic, right, between the consequentialist and the non-consequentialist. The consequentialist, or the non-consequentialist says, here's this intuition that isn't being effectively captured by consequentialism. And the consequentialist will either say, here's how we can capture that intuition, or that intuition is BS for this reason and doesn't need to be captured by a functional ethical theory. That's that's the game.
0: Would you consider yourself since you're a no free will person? Are you more of a consequentialist than a deontologist?
1: I would consider myself a non consequentialist because I believe that in any, you know, like if we're if we mean consequences in a useful way. And I think that there is a sense in which consequences absolutely do matter. And like the non consequentialist will 100 percent say Consequences matter as part of our ethical calculus, and sometimes they do swamp out these other. Like, like if the choice were between all of humanity and one person on the other track, Francis is going to say absolutely flip that switch. You have a deep moral obligation to flip that switch. So, like numbers matter, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. But yeah, I, th- I, I, I would think agree. I would agree
0: matters, that yeah. that the context and the situation do really matter. Like, absolutely, I, I think that's hundred percent correct.
1: Yeah, and we'll we'll talk through some other examples of, and like the truth is, I'm not super sympathetic to a lot of the common deontological, the conventional deontological distinctions that are often used to show like this distinction can't be effectively captured by consequentialism, but I do buy into the larger project of we need to talk about more than just consequences if we're going to give a robust enough account of ethics to help people flourish properly. So like, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So like, yeah, the other one that I mentioned, right. um, Is the doctrine of double effect. Um, And, and Francis presents um, what she calls the doctrine of triple effect, which is an attempt to try to revise the doctrine of double effect, which she (laughs) thinks is largely incomplete. And I also think is largely flawed. So again, the idea here is um there's a difference between you causing or using a harm as your means to bring about a certain good end or
0: bring Wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, certain- I'm sorry, hold on, yeah. say that one more time.
1: Yeah. Um there's an there's an ethical difference between um actively committing a harm in a sense. Mm-hmm. right engaging in something as a harm to knowingly bring about.
0: knowingly committing yeah. a harm in yeah. order to knowingly, bring about something good
1: right knowingly using a harm as a means to bring about a good end
0: mm-hmm. so there's right. a difference between that
1: and okay. between that and bringing about a good end where you know that doing so will also lead to a harm
0: Mm. Can you can you dig into that a bit more?
1: Yeah. So I'll give an example in the trolley again. Right? We're going to just gonna stick with the yeah, trolley problem. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Right. So some people I think the majority of people intuitively think if I can pull a lever and flip the switch and and like kill one person to save five, that's acceptable. But if I push someone onto the tracks, to kill them and derail the train in the process, that's morally unacceptable. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We, we've gone
1: over that before. Yeah. Right. And so there are a couple of different ways you can understand the doctrine of double effect. Um, one of them is in terms of intention. What are you intending? Are you intending to bring about the harm or the, the good that comes about as a result of the harm? Um, or another way to put it is, are you using the harm as a necessary means to a certain end that is a better outcome? So the pushing someone onto the tracks is using them as a means in a way that turning the trolley onto the other track is not using the other person as, an, as a means. because, And we know this because if there was no one on the other track, right, you would still totally flip the switch and turn the trolley onto their track right so you you're not necessarily required to use their death as a way to bring about the um the out the the intended outcome
0: essentially i wonder if so i'm going to try to pick at it a little bit so Mm -hmm. just to play devil's advocate i wonder if it more has to do with uh uh human connection and by that i mean uh we agree because we've agreed on this in the past that if there's a very big difference between me pressing a button which launches a missile way up in the, you know, way up in space that comes down and kills one person thousands of miles away on the other side of the globe, there's a difference between that and me putting my hands around someone's neck and killing them. Yeah. That there's an intimacy problem between those two, even if. In both cases, the uh, intention was the same and and the outcome was the same. So I, so, so, go ahead.
1: No, you're just on fire today. I just wanted to give you credit for like, (laughs) this is absolutely the next step of the argument and you're just laying it out beautifully. Did you have anything else you wanted to say there? No,
0: no. It, I was just, yeah. I was going to keep elaborating if it didn't make sense, but yeah.
1: No, no, you're totally crushing it here, right? So like the the natural pushback that a lot of people have to the pushing the person onto the tracks example is, you know, my reaction, my intuition, why this is immoral in a way that pulling the lever isn't is because of the up-close nature of it, right? And there are evolutionary psychologists who, uh, you know, in conjunction with people like Peter Singer consequentialists who will say you know this intuition is just uh a, an evolved bias from spending most of our time you know dealing with people up close and personal as evolving creatures in small communities etc right because we know Which is a reasonable because, pushback.
0: because we know that even just hugging someone that physical contact actually like changes our brain chemistry
1: yeah absolutely right and so like um, and this is a the to me, one of the best examples of the why I wanted to say that we wanted to talk about intuitions and their role in ethics, because myself included, right? a, a lot of intuitionists, as we're called, believe that intuitions are an essential part of our ethical decision making and and reasoning that like we can't make sense of what we're doing ethically or gain ethical knowledge without relying on intuitions. But, There are a lot of reasonable concerns about the use of intuitions in our ethical judgments because um, intuitions are a mixed bag of evolved, you know, conscious beliefs. Right. And like, you know, we can reasonably worry that like any one intuition is problematic. So how do we test them? Right.
0: I have an an idea. I'm sorry, before you do, because I know I know you're going to have a great idea uh that that (laughs) the answer (laughs) yeah you probably have the answer but let me think all right let me come up with a trolley problem that may Mm -hmm. uh uh, be a good way to test this good right Yeah. so so standard trolley problem five and one right here's the difference you can either in one situation you press a button where a robot throws a lever on the train that kills the one person or you press the one button and that robot on the train pushes someone off the tracks, which saves the five people.
1: That is exactly the response that Francis gives. Yes. that is. I mean, she uses she uses like a like a, um you know, like a pushing system. I'm pushing, you know, but it's like it doesn't have a robot, but it's still it's exactly. Well, like, clearly, you know.
0: I'm a better philosopher than her because I have robots in mind. <laughs>
1: and here's the cool part. Right. Because she's Francis, she, uh, you know, pushed back on Singer <laughs> with this argument and said, you should get your friends, the psychology folks to do a study of people and ask them, how would they feel about pulling the lever if they knew it meant pushing the person onto the tracks at a distance? And what do you think they found?
0: Uh, I don't know.
1: They found that people were still against it.
0: Hmm. So
1: what does that mean?
0: Uh that there's something. Mm. That's a good question. It's mm.
1: Right. If you're there's, okay, if you're not okay with doing it at a distance. I,
0: no, no, no. I no, I think this is what it is. That you know, by pulling the lever, which changes the train tracks, right? This the trolley is in motion. It's this unstoppable force and you are just redirecting this unstoppable force right mm. while pulling a lever which pushes someone right it's 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 the contact right it is it it's this empathy right putting yourself in that person's shoes of like mm-hmm. having something make contact with you that then results in your murder is mm-hmm. like totally different than you know it's 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 the difference between I'm gonna save your life by jumping in front of the bullet that's hurling at you and uh-huh. I'm going to just take a gun and put it to me and shoot it.
1: Okay. Um I mean I was sort of on ball with you until the last, very last part. Yeah, I um, know it was great. I, mean, I, I do think that like I mean, like one thing that Francis talks about is that like there are so salient differences between like train is already in motion, like what do you do? versus like it hasn't even started yet is there a difference in those kinds of situations as well um i mean the funny thing about francis is that like she will say herself that like she has never met an intuition she doesn't like like she, she but like she does push back on certain intuitions and that's another big problem with the with the debates that rely on intuitions is you want ethics to be ideally universal and like people don't all have the same intuitive responses to these arguments so like if you don't have anything more than intuitions to back it up can you provide a fully universal or, or are you obligated to try to provide a fully universal account or can you just say some people have defective intuitions some right? people so, suck <laughs> Some people might suck right but all the thing i want to point out that like you you took a different approach on that, which I think is an interesting one. A lot of folks normally get into a place of, like, killing versus letting die as being that really important morally salient distinction. I mentioned that one, right, where it's like... Um, it's an intimacy you know, thing. Well, it might not just be... In it, like. Here's the other thing I wanted to push back on you a little bit and say that, like, one major consequence of that study, I think, is... Um, it's not an intimacy thing. It's not just that, like, being up close and personal is what is causing us to have a one reaction in one case but not in the other. Like, if you take the personal out of it and make it levers in both cases, people still have different responses. Uh, Maybe not everyone. Maybe some people don't. Maybe some people change their response in those cases. But I think that, like, a lot of folks, you know, it's not just, like, a priming issue either. Another thing that the psychologists will say is that, like, well, if you ask one trolley problem first and then another one, you can prime people to give, quote unquote, what they would think are consistent answers. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I get you to like agree that you don't want to push the person yourself, you're also likely to agree that you don't want to pull a lever to push the person.
0: Well, what about um, what What about like let's say that it's a trolley that's moving incredibly slowly and it's, you know, five people that are tied to the track and one person tied to a different track. Right. And your options are like we, we will agree that just for this moment that pulling the lever uh, is the morally right thing to do. Let's just, let's just use that uh-huh. premise for the moment. Right. So pulling the lever okay. so, it, so it kills the one person is the right thing to do uh, uh-huh. or killing or having the one person die is better than having the five die. Let's just assume that. Yeah. So let's say you have two options. One option is you pull the lever, the tracks go over, and the trolley is going to run them over very slowly. They'll have a slowly painful death. Or
1: you could uh-huh. shoot
0: them in the head with a gun, and uh-huh. it will kill them instantly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and maybe in that case, should <laughs> shoot them in the head. So excited. <laughs> I mean, like that's that's the contextual interaction idea, where it's like. Something that would be horrible before shooting someone in the head might become morally obligatory if, like, they're about to be eaten by reavers, right? Like, we're about to be slowly, slowly killed. Like, so it might be the case that, you know, that we want to reject the doctrine of double effect and say that, like, it doesn't make a substantial difference if you use. This thing to bring about, like if you if I deliberately kill someone who's in constant unending pain with a deliberate overdose, even though that's a case of killing and not just letting die. So the the killing versus letting die is where the doctrine double effect often is like put forward. It's like it's okay to withhold life support that will cause someone to die, but it's not okay to give them a lethal dose.
0: Yeah, it's mostly. Yeah 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 it's the kevorkian thing and like i am very i'm very much on the side of uh doctor assisted suicide in very specific cases where someone has like terminal a terminal illness that cannot be cured and they're gonna go through a, a great amount of suffering and like you know you I think that there are ways of regulating that, but like going away from the regulation part, I think that that is something that someone should be able to do and decide is to mm-hmm. reduce their own suffering. Uh huh. But that, but that's that's more about uh, self agency. I think that'd be the and right way to um, put that. That's another interesting question that
1: also gets into like supererogatory versus obligatory and the trolley situation and the like the hard case that I really personally struggle with, which is the the three person option where it's like five people or kill yourself or Mm -hmm. the one other person. And like I'm strongly compelled by the intuition that if I'm not willing to sacrifice myself, it's immoral for me to sacrifice one other person. That like, yeah, and I said the same thing,
0: yeah, that I should kill myself or that I would kill myself. And Francis argues that like,
1: it's okay to kill the other one person and not yourself, and that like, it might even be obligatory to kill the one other person and not yourself. Because partly she argues that like, Thompson claims you're asking the other person to do the exact same thing as what you're doing, right? Like, if you're not willing to take the the killing yourself option you can't ask someone else to kill themselves and Francis will say well look I'm not asking them to kill themselves I'm killing them right there's a difference between wi- being willing to sacrifice yourself and and being killed for the sake of some greater good right and and so like she argues that there's a morally salient difference there I'm I'm still a little skeptical of that personally but like I see I agree with her that there is a difference between those two things. I'm not sure that it's enough for me to justify feeling like it's okay to kill the other one person. But she presents a counter um another thought experiment um to like test the range of that intuition where she says like imagine this situation, right? You're a lifeguard on duty and you have the option of swimming over to five people who are drowning and saving them or swimming over to one person who's drowning and saving them right or like saving the five people by throwing them a life preserver that you need and drowning yourself right mm. so there, are you saying there's three options there or are you saying three options yep it's oh. the same three options right you die to save the five or you swim you over can and save, save the, the five, five. You can save the five and yourself, but it's the same numbers, right? It's the same like, but it might feel a little different turning a trolley onto someone versus just not swimming over to someone
0: and and saving that one person instead of the five Wait, this this doesn't make sense I'm sorry Look, yeah, okay just so, just so it's clear, so my options are I can swim to one person and save them and myself uh-huh. I can swim uh-huh. over and save five, pe- five people and myself, or I could uh-huh. save five people and die.
1: Yes, it seems exactly. like
0: like that is the worst of all options. Like, why save would you po- and yeah. die? Yeah, why would you choose if you have an option of of not dying and saving them? Why wouldn't you do that?
1: Because I mean, well, that's uh, here's what I'll say. That's the same option as in the trolley case, turning the trolley onto yourself and dying to save the five other people plus the one
0: other person. Oh, that's the part I was unclear. So, okay. Could, sorry. So you could save the five and the one, but you die. Yes.
1: I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Yeah. Okay, so okay. You could save everyone else. except. I was yourself. like, that doesn't
0: make sense. <laughs> yeah.
1: Sorry. That's, that's my fault. I got that. And like, yeah, yeah. So the, again, it's the idea of trying to hold everything constant, but get a different intuition out of
0: it. And well, like, well, I think actually, I think that here's where I'm going to poke a hole in it. Um, I actually know some people who are um, uh, work in fire rescue because uh, I actually uh-huh. considered going into um, uh, being like a, a person that does rope rescue, where you actually like if someone is stranded on a cliff or something, there's a special group of people that go to rescue those. And so I, uh-huh. I was I was talking to a person who does this, and he said that the number one rule when it comes to rescue is that you never put yourself in a situation where you become the victim meaning that yes. like you never put yourself in a situation where you have to be rescued so i say that to say that in the instance of the problem you you just said it's not just the five and the one and you die it's also the future people that you won't be able to save cuz you don't exist anymore
1: yeah and and like you're totally right we haven't even like scratched the surface of special Obligations both towards people who you have a particular moral responsibility towards or a particular contractual responsibility towards, or like you know, role specific responsibilities. Like, if you're a lifeguard, should you do X instead of Y because that's the lifeguard code or something like that?
0: Right? Yeah, like it, it's almost like all if of you, that factors in. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if you were to do the three way trolley problem and it either kills five people, kills one person. Every year for the next fifty years, or you die. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh huh. Uh-huh. It's like it's a trolley that goes on in yeah, like yeah, yeah. for fifty yeah, years, yeah. and every uh-huh. year it kills one person. Uh, yeah. And and that could be a case where like the consequentialist would say, "Ha, we can actually
1: explain why you ought to do this thing that appears selfish because it's actually produces the better outcomes." Yeah. Right? So you could tie it back around um, to that. So yeah, um, we're running a little short here, but I want to like let's see what else we can cover here in the time. Like, l- that's what I mean. There's just so much amazing stuff that that she's done. Her um her writing is often quite dense because she is incredibly brilliant, and it's it's often hard to sometimes follow exactly um sort of the complexities of her thought experiments. One of the other things? So is, is she, she is she
0: more of a continental philosopher? Or is she more of an analytical? No. Analytic, analytic philosopher. Yeah, okay. Great. Stro- strongly analytic. We always um, we always make sure to put the context of those two categories in our philosophers.
1: Yeah. Strongly analytic and like studied with and engaged with folks like Parfit and Nagel and Scanlon. A lot of really important people as well within uh, the tradition. Um, she has some really great pushbacks on um, Derek Parfit's uh, ethics, which we haven't really covered much at all yet. We'll probably eventually talk about him more for his discussion of personhood um, than his ethics, um, because a lot of folks are interested in like his his theories of bundle. Persons and such. um but, Yeah.
0: So. Is like uh, twins and, and triplets or.
1: That, that you're not like Bundled a discrete persons. entity, but just a bundle of features, very much like Hume and the Buddhists.
0: Okay. Yeah. A bundle right. of features.
1: You're just a bundle of features. I mean, like, I got nothing else. You're just a bundle of features. Yeah. Um, that sounds like
0: something on a Valentine's Day card
1: yeah so let me um with the time we have left let me, let me see if i can lay out this really interesting argument about uh the intransitivity of ethical obligation um which like the, the, the transitivity is stuff that's rel- like these transitivity debates are relatively new to me from this um semester and i just think they're super cool in the sense that like they raise another huge problem for the things that i care about you mean which super is uber cool super super erogatorily cool (laughs) um yeah so and and this um example involves super erogatory versus obligatory versus not obligatory so those three features are going to be sort of used in context here right something that you want to do something that you're obligated to do and something that it goes above and beyond your obligation Mm -hmm. okay um so the problem goes like this right it seems like it is morally acceptable to pass to skip out on a duty, a moral obligation to do something supererogatory, right? Yep. So if if I have an obligation to meet you for lunch and I can stop and save a child, but in doing so I'll I'll miss our lunch meeting or something like yep. it is morally acceptable for me to do that thing, yeah, right, uncontroversially. Yep. It seems like right. Also, right it seems like it is morally acceptable for me to choose not to engage in a super erogatory action in exchange for, or, or, and and, and, sorry, and instead do whatever I want. Right. So like yeah. I'm on my way to see a movie and I see a building on fire and there's like people caught inside. Right. It would be super erogatory for me to run into that building and try to save people. I can reasonably continue on my way and go do the thing I would do, and no one would consider that unethical. That's the nature of supererogatory actions, it seems like.
0: Yes. Yeah, I would agree with all that.
1: Okay. So the problem then follows is, if it's okay to skip out on a duty for a supererogatory action, and it's okay to skip out on a supererogatory action to do whatever I want— the law of transitivity would suggest that it's okay for me to skip out on a moral duty to do whatever I want.
0: Well, no, because if we are, (laughs) if we're saying that if we're defining super erogatory as going above and beyond what is uh, required of a person to do or an entity to do uh, morally speaking, then uh, it's, it's what all we're saying is that like you are not required to do that moral thing. Right. But am I missing? Like, I I don't know. It seems, this seems obvious and maybe I'm missing something.
1: I mean, this is like a philosophy problem. And so it may not immediately take hold of a lot of interest for like, but like, here's the basic idea, right? This is sort of like, uh, if I can pick, um, B over A, right? If it's acceptable for me to choose option B over option A, Mm -hmm. right? And it's acceptable for me to choose option C over option B. It follows. It seems like that it should be acceptable for me to choose option C over option A. Yeah. Right. It's a basic transitivity situation. It seems like if you assume that, acceptability of choosing is a purely transitive property in that kind of sense.
0: I guess right? then, then the way that you set up those two examples, it didn't sound like a A to B or a B to C, well, a B to A and a C to B thing.
1: It's basically saying if, if you think of a as the moral obligation, B is super, super and C as Doing whatever you want. Right. It's okay to pick super over duty. And it's okay to pick doing whatever you want over super But intuitively. Oh, I see now. Okay. Intuitively, we don't think it's okay for you to pick doing whatever you want over your moral duty.
0: I guess, I guess that it, um, it's okay for you to go into, uh, to not go into the fiery building um mm-hmm. because that would be super derogatory, um and it's okay for you to you know uh save a girl who's about to get hit by a car um mm-hmm. if it means that you miss a lunch date um right but it, it but, wouldn't mm-hmm. I see yeah yeah sorry I'm just wrapping my brain around it now yeah it wouldn't um, be okay to blow off the lunch date for the sake of me
1: going to go see a movie or something
0: right but then right. so then just to pick out a bunch right is it i guess it, it makes me want to dig into like what what do we mean by moral duty like what is moral <laughs> duty because yeah. like you know using the lunch date as as an example like i know i you know i like to say i need more context and i know the, your answer is always like no more context um well but like francis would love
1: that answer because like she loves context Right. Contextual yep. interaction is her jam. Um, so yeah, like, I she would I, agree with
0: you. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I guess that like lunch date is not like with a trolley problem. It's specific without being contextual that makes, or it's uh-huh. contextual without being specific, right? It's uh-huh. five people in one person and you're on a trolley. Right. It, it, is, and like with lunch date, it's like, all right, so I probably know this person. I, I don't know. I just like, I guess I yeah. just don't like that example.
1: And I mean, like, again, there's a bunch more, like, you know, all of this natural, like, well, what about this, like, variable that you're not accounting for, or that variable? Like, that's the game, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 some will argue that, like, because the, the non-consequentialists are always there with, like, another explanation, another principle to explain why this intuition is coming out weird in this case or not or something like that, like... Some people get worried that it's just a bunch of ad hoc rationalizations for like feelings we have about these different situations where like these are just a bunch of just so stories that that keep trying to explain, you know, what could just be like intuitions that we have because we happen to have evolved in a world where, you know, killing is a lot, a much more prevalent activity
0: than letting die or something like if you had a lot more opportunities. And also there's like uh You know, with the examples that you laid out, like a lot of these things, it has to do with like you have a binary set of choices. And Mm -hmm. uh, so like it's a relative nature that makes things morally correct or not correct or more, I should say, morally good or or morally bad um, or, you know, super erogatory. Mm -hmm. So so it's a relativity thing, that I think there's a bit of a problem. Like it's the difference between if you have the choice between you die, and five strangers die, or just you die, like, uh-huh. Uh, I, I would say that you are morally obligated, not in a super superrogatory way to just kill your have yourself die. Uh-huh, you see what I'm saying? And so uh, uh-huh I, so then, I don't know. it seems like it seems like that idea could get fleshed out into yeah. different examples.
1: I mean, look, like, you know, I'm almost on I'm, board. I, I'm I, and like, there's a lot more complexity to all of this. And I, I feel like we should we should try to wrap it up. But like, um, you know, anyone who's like, well, what about this thing or that thing? Or anyone who's like, well, this is all just feels like a bunch of nonsense. Like, I understand those reactions to it, though. I am sympathetic to a lot of these uh, uh, to, to like the use of intuitions, even though I often disagree with like some of the intuitions that a lot of people seem to have Um, I think that it's important to try to see if we can come up with some sort of consistency as well as appealing to the kind of plural foundations that you and I have talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think just Francis is just really, she's, she's super hilarious too in person, in class. Like she spent the first half of the seminar when the other person was teaching, like, Engaging in some of the, the most brilliant heckling that I've ever seen. Like it was very loving. Like they're clearly, you know, they're long-term friends and and like, but it was super like, here's this page in your book where I disagree with this one specific thing, and then like a bunch of hilarious mugging. Um, but like she's also hilariously self-deprecating and uh and use, you, you know, we'll say things like David Parfitt's uh Derek, sorry, Derek Parfitt's um uh, ethics she reads to her like mashuga which is <laughs> uh, crazy in um you know in uh, yiddish yeah. so she's just super funny and like um and and she just done a lot of very solid work in in the course of her career so yeah she sounds awesome cool 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 we got this I don't know about you guys, but I am definitely the best
0: version of myself. So for our Making the Void Livable, it is one of the funniest things that I think totally fits into the void here. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is a game. And the game is like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. Um, So it's just a purely text-based game. And uh, I'm going to just read the very beginning of it. When you wake up this morning from unsettling dreams, you find yourself changed in your bed in a monstrous vermin. You are Jeff Bezos. (laughs) And so the game is a series of like, it's all just text. There's no other visuals. And you basically go through and find out that you're Jeff Bezos. And like you know, the first thing it says is like, you know, you, f- you wake up and you're Jeff Bezos. What do you do? And your options are, I go to the bathroom. I scream and sob. Uh, or, I'm sorry. First option. I go to the bathroom. Second, I scream and sob with terror over the unnatural event. Third, I spend all of his fucking money. So like essentially in one way or another, you wind up like trying to figure out how to spend your money. And your net worth is $156 billion. And you get to make choices like... Uh, repair Puerto Rico and how much money that would cost pay for the border wall, and then not build it, pay personal taxes, and uh, homelessness in the United States. So it's just this super hilarious game where you, uh, realize, uh, one thing, which is how terrible capitalism is and how people who have an unreasonable amount of money could solve so many world problems and don't, uh, And then also, it just like there's a bunch of different endings. There's like a good ending, a neutral ending, and then a couple of secret endings. Uh, I've only been able to do the good and the neutral one. I don't know about you, Aaron. I've only played through it once, and I got the
1: neutral ending um, by by striving to uh, spend all of Jeff Bezos's fucking money, Um, which is a challenging task. They really convey to you the difficulty of successfully. Spending this individual's massive, massive wealth, which was, you know, like I had heard about this game before and I had heard it was just like a funny, you know, ha ha ha, it's impossible to ever spend this much money game. But when you suggested it, I actually played through it and it's it's got some really funny, very dark like stories that go on as you try to, you know, like spend his money and like, he'll try to prevent you from doing it. And like, you make money back while you're like trying to spend while you're like stuck in jail because people who spend, you know, you spent too much of your own money. Um, so yeah, I really love it. Um, I'm going to definitely gonna try for a couple of the, other endings though that involves doing something other than just spending the maximum amount of money which is yeah. what i did on my first playthrough
0: i just found one that i didn't see before which was buy twitter and and then delete your account so you buy twitter for <laughs> 50 billion way more than it's actually worth but you'd rather get the acquisition over with quickly after you ban the circus peanut in the white house you also get rid of jack and not and all the nazis good riddance i mean,
1: I wanted to point out, like, speaking of void news, um, Jeff Bezos just settled his divorce, uh, which came about as a result of being outed for having an affair. And from what I gather, he said he's, you know, something into the tune of $35 billion that is going to his now, I guess, ex wife. Um, yeah. And he's still the richest person in the world. Yeah. He's he's got so much money. He can pay thirty five billion dollars for sex and still be the richest person in the world, which is why it's hilarious to me that someone like Donald Trump is trying to fight this person.
0: Yeah, seriously. Like one of the things is reboot Mythbusters. Another is like pay off a thousand graduate students loans. Mm -hmm. Fund 10 animal rescues for four years. Mm hmm it's just so good so this is making the void livable for me
1: yeah no it's it's super fun and everyone should play through it yes Uh, 2017 he became the world's wealthiest person with 151 billion dollars at this point
0: yeah ridiculous amount of money so we'll, we'll put a link to the game in the show notes so that anyone that wants to play it can do so yeah
1: And, um, isn't it great having GW back with all these amazing questions and responses? (laughs) Never, never, never leave us again.
0: I think, I think it is super erogatory for me to uh, ask a question.
1: (laughs) But, but it's the best kind of super erogatory.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, I guess I'm just going to do whatever I want.
1: <laughs> do, do, do what you I do what I want. Whatever. I we do
0: should, what I want.
1: <laughs> we should do the Cartman uh, theory of ethics. Oh, wow. That would be good. Car- Cartman and, and the sociopathic ethics. The theory. philosophy of Cartman. <laughs> that'd be it's dark. Very voidy.